in today's episode of the Amon Wire podcast. They learn this behavior. I mean, this is how anti-blackness works, right? It's not because people are consciously like, I hate black people, but they learn how to value blackness, right? So you learn, well, blackness is cool if you want somebody to sing you a song, right? Blackness may not be so cool if you want somebody to represent you um, at the White House. People learn that these kind of how to value it, and then it, it, it reproduces itself in the way we work in our communities. Unfortunately, very often I see many people that they, they look at the Prophet as an Arab. And to me, you know, God doesn't send a prophet and tie him down to a particular culture. He transcended that culture, but he put forth the spiritual culture there that transcends time. How that manifests itself in America uh, differs. Listen to the concept, sweat, tech, techno. Peace be the Lord, I feel the sword when I speak. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum, mashallah. A universal greeting from the people of Akar. Step into the realm of my cipher. Assalamu alaikum and welcome to the Iman Wire podcast. I'm Mohammed Salim from Iman Wire. Today we're going to be talking about a host of subjects uh, with Mutasim Atiyah from Al Medin Institute and Dr. Suad Abdul Khabir, uh, who is the author of a, uh, a new book called uh, Muslim Cool. Uh, we're going to talk about our book and talk about um, some other uh, um, issues facing the community. Uh, first, welcome, uh, Brother Mutasim and Dr. Suad. Thank you. So, actually, actually, before you start, Salim, I have to put sure, this out there. So, Saad and I, we've known each other since the minute, back in the minute days, right, Saad? Yes, yes. Way, way, way back. We go back. When, when, Minna, was, when Minna was really cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so when it was Muslim cool. We're going to talk about that. <laughs> so, we were going to talk about uh, Muslim cool. Definitely want to get into that. But uh, at the time of the recording of this podcast, um, uh, this is the weekend of RIS, and uh, we uh, we'd be remiss to not uh, talk about the issues going on that happened this weekend, sure. um, dealing with issues of race and how um, it's uh, discussed in our community. So, um, you know, I'll, I'll turn it first to you, Matassim, uh, and your concerns about what happened this weekend. Yeah, and, and Saad, I'm going to also hand it off to you. But so it's, it, there's so many ways to try to um, unpackage what, what happened this weekend. And, uh, you know, it was very telling in one way, unfortunate in another. But it's interesting, Saad. So I actually uh, I pulled up the audio and I listened to uh, the question that uh, Mahdi Hassan had posed to Sheikh Hamza. And I thought it was a really interesting question. And he basically asked him if he felt that a lot of the imams or the Muslim community of America sort of dropped the ball in being involved in other anti-racist uh, uh, movements, for example, with the African-American community or the Latino community, and we're sort of late to the game. Mm-hmm. And that, that sort of triggered everything that came after it. And, and you know, so I, I thought about that question for a while. And, um, you know, I came to America when I was two years old. Palestinian family, and and we grew up in Kuwait. So I recall growing up going to rallies that had to do with Bosnia. Uh, We went to rallies that had to do with Iraq, lots of rallies that had to do with Palestine. But uh, we were never involved in any particular rally that had to do with the African-American community in general. Uh, We weren't involved in anything that had to do with Latinos. I mean, when it came to social engagement of uh, American issues, it, it wasn't happening. You know, and so I think, you know, to to answer Mahdi Hassan's question, especially for the immigrant community, the answer is, yeah, we, we, you know, we weren't there. But I think there's been a shift in this new generation where we've become a lot more conscious. Um, If you look at my kids, they definitely, you know, do not uh, identify as being Arab. They're American, right? Even there's been a a social shift in myself and, and where I see myself. So, 
issues of race for the African-American community or the Latino community, something very close to our hearts now, though it wasn't back then. So, and so I just want to put that out there and see what your thoughts on it before we sort of delved a little bit deeper into mm-hmm. it. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, I think, so I, I would agree with you in terms of that. I think the question about dropping the ball is true for certain segments of the Muslim community. So I don't think we can say that sort of broadly, like the Muslims drop the ball, right? Because we know that specifically with Black Muslims, right, that that ball is something they've been carrying for quite some time, right? And have been very, so like you, I went to protest for Palestine. I went to protest for Bosnia. And we also protested when Amadou Diallo was killed by the, the New York City police, right? We also boycotted Reeboks because it was, they, they supported the apartheid regime in South Africa, right? So, so sort of as a growing up as a Black Muslim in the United States, um, uh, with roots in Latin America and the Caribbean, like, you know, sort of the issues that are sort of the quote unquote Muslim issues and the sort of black issues are always my issues at the same time. And I come from communities that were always doing that kind of work. And even amongst sort of Muslim immigrant communities, you still, you had people who were also involved, perhaps not the mass, right? But definitely you also had those kind of folks there too. So I think we don't want to sort of forget um, or erase those kind of solidarities. Um, and I think I think what's interesting about though what happened and the response to it, I think is a shift that marks a shift, not just in terms of um, I think particularly the last couple of years, right, with the ways in which again how young um, people, young Black people, young Latinx people, you know, young Asian American people, how they have been organizing around issues of social justice and how they've been shifting or pushing people and pushing communities in particular kind of ways. Because I could imagine that an incident like this would have happened even two years ago, who would have been like, this is wrong, or what he said, you know, this was problematic, would have been summarily dismissed. You know what's interesting, uh, Dr. Saad, when Sheikh Hamza responds initially, he responds by citing the work that his mother had done. Right. And I think that was a very also interesting narrative that, you know, he grew up in a family that was keen on the civil rights movement here in America. I mean, he, he talks about very often how he himself was involved uh, in it growing up as a child and his mother was was very involved. So, you know, it, it's, it fits his narrative that, yeah, you know, that's what he did. Right. Uh, yeah. I think it was where sort of the shift in response after that is where things got a little problematic. Well, actually, that in and of itself, to be quite frank, was where the problem began, um, uh, because, um, you know, the work that his mother was involved in, involved in as important as it was, and I don't know the extent to it, but I'm, I mean, I'm assuming, you know, she, he said that she was really involved in that kind of thing, is really important and should be um um, saluted and validated, but it but to begin with that is sort of this kind of defensive move, right? So rather than um, sort of accepting and really listening and accepting whatever the kind of the aggrieved parties, you know, sort of problem, you you don't listen to them. You say, well, no, I have this, you know. It's like you know, people say, oh, I have black friends, you know, this kind of thing, and it, and and that begins the problem because um, you know. The in some ways the proof is in the pudding, yes. So if the, th- that's the background, then how does the background end up where we are today, right? And so I, I think the kind of problem sort of actually started with invoking um, his mother. May Allah have you know mercy on her in the beginning, actually, because that's that because the issue isn't about what she did or didn't do, right? That's that's not really what we're talking about. We're talking about right now specifically, you know, what was said 
right? And about that. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. I actually like that. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, this whole situation to me, I, I found it very interesting because it, it definitely brought up an issue that, that needs to be addressed and something that, um, you know, we need to be more aware of. And then there's also the overarching package as to how this whole thing went down. And, um, you know, so I, what I'm struggling with, really, and I am, and, and maybe you can help me with this, you know, Sheikh Hamza is a man who spent his past 30 years of his life giving every minute, every day to the Muslim community of America. I mean, you know, this is a man who was trying his best in, in the narrative that he thought or thinks is best to, mm-hmm. to, to help better the Muslim community here. Uh, then all of a sudden we have the situation this weekend where, you know, do we call the mistake a gaffe? You know, there's many things mm-hmm. that sort of have been addressed. But let's just say the, the man made a mistake. He made a comment that he himself, he says, listen, I was uh, jet lagged. Uh, I came from the UAE. I was extremely tired. I was poked and prodded and I made a comment and, you know, he put his apology out for it. Uh, But then the Internet tears him down and we find people, even Muslim leadership, uh, making comments about him to the extent that, you know, comparing him to bigots, um, taking away his scholarship, saying that this man's not a true scholar. I mean, just all this attack on a person who's been a pillar of the Muslim American community here. And I think that's where it gets really unfair. And uh, that's something I think that we also need to be able to address is, okay, when someone makes a mistake like this, Dr. Saad, you know, what is the proper way to address it? Even if it's a a race-related mistake. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So one, so I actually am not privy to the things you're talking about. I haven't seen any attacks on um, Sheikh Hamza Yusuf as a person or as a scholar. I've seen attacks on his comments Mm -hmm. um, and people sort of criticizing that. And I've also likewise seen people um, refuse to validate um, the criticism because of his history. And I think the thing is, you know, none of us are perfect, Mm -hmm. right? And some of us can be really knowledgeable in particular areas and not have as much knowledge in others. And that's completely fine. And I think to be able to acknowledge that, you know, um, as a community is also important. I was actually discussing this um, with someone today. And I think on some levels, you know, I think uh, what and this is I'll get to the other part of your question, but I do think it's important. I think on some levels what we see is kind of maybe problematic relationships that we have with scholars. Right. Um, I think, you know, you know, people say, you know, the, the, the scholars are the heirs of the prophets. Right. Um, and, you know, Prophet Muhammad says, and I'm like, we know him to be a person who was actually had a lot of dexterity and acumen in a lot of different areas. Right. Mm-hmm. Yet even he would say, oh, no, I don't know about that. Right. Type of thing. You know, and I think sometimes with our own scholars today, we have these expectations. Right. That they're going to be able to speak to everything mm-hmm. and they can't speak to everything because they're human and they have limitations. And so but then sometimes they try to speak to everything because we expect that from them. Right. So we end up in this position mm-hmm. where someone who you know, maybe isn't the best to talk about this particular thing is asked to do so. Then when they trip up, right, because that's what's going to happen if you're not, right. so if you have the space, then it becomes this like, you know, well, you know, it's like a crisis of faith or something. You right, know? Right, right. It's like, it's like if we, if we had, if our expectations were much more measured in the first place, we'd be much, much more able to deal with that. Mm-hmm. I think when these things happen, I think for me, I think it's really, really important that we we distinguish between intent and impact. And I think what happens oftentimes, particularly in conversations of inequality, when people do something, say something that has a negative impact on marginalized people, they say, that's not what I meant. Right. Mm-hmm. And so that's not what I meant. And so then we all get into this conversation about, you know, 
the nature of the person, right? They didn't mean that, they're a good person, all that kind of stuff. It's like, no, that's irrelevant, right? What you meant. What we're, what we're holding you accountable for is your impact. And so we should do that in ways, right, that recognize that, that the, that what happened here and who this, what this person said doesn't have to negate who they are, you know, from the day they were born to that moment, right? I think Which I think a lot of Muslims struggle with, Dr. Saad, and that's a very interesting point, is that all of a sudden we love to throw the baby out with the bathwater. Right. I mean, but we also do that selectively, right? right? So I think, so I think there are other spaces where we won't, we wouldn't do that. You know what I mean? So I think, so people, I think people, and I think that throwing in the baby with the bathwater oftentimes is because it's not, it, there are other things happening here, right? So I think, I think, um, I think like in this, in this case, for example, there are issues around um, ideological differences that Muslims have, right? So maybe, you know, so people think a certain kind of way. And so if someone does this and oh, this is proof of that again, right? You know, this kind of thing. So there are these other, I think, kind of, kind of that subtext, you know, or, you know, that's also at play here. But I think for me, what's really important is that we don't not critique, right? Because the thing, so I listen to the six minute and half clip that people were sharing around. And then I listened to the, um, response that also happened yesterday. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's really, really important that the highlighting sort of the gaps and the missteps here, not to demonize the person, but to help us not spread those ideas. So like, for example, one of the things that he said in the um, second part was that the greatest tragedy facing African-Americans is not racism, but the, the breakdown of the black family. And now this, that comment was actually really hurtful and painful to a lot of people, but it's also, he's not the first person to say that, right? Other people have said that, black people have said that, but it's also patently wrong and false, like completely, right? And so, but the crowd in that audience clapped, like they cheered when he said that. So what that means is that there's an idea that's circulating in American society and Muslim communities, right? That is wrong, logically wrong, it's Delicious is based. I mean, it's like, it's really, really a wrong idea, and it's a dangerous idea, and it's a hurtful idea, and so we need to make sure people know that, right? So it's not about for me. It's not about Sheikh Hamza Yusuf, right? Like it could have been like your grandmother said it, right? <laughs> like whatever. But it's like that thing that we have to tackle. That we have to say, okay, he said that he is misinformed because here is what's happening here, right? And I think that's really important. So I think, and I think we can do that. I think we can say, you know. Uh, you know, I respect this person. He does X really well on here. He was misinformed. And this is why we need to understand that. I think the problem that I've seen um, is that you, I actually have seen people like you're not even able to do that. It's like if you say that he was wrong, it's as if you've said that he's been wrong forever. So I've had a different experience than what you've ex- I haven't seen the kind of vitriol you're talking about. Right. What I've seen is the flip side that if you if you even say like, no, that was wrong, then it's like somehow you're you're demonizing him as a human being. Yeah, and, and, um, and that's a problematic response. And I've seen that from people who, who have this deep-rooted love and, you know, this inability to, um, you know, I think I think some people, you know, they, they put individuals to such a stature that, um, you know, for their own faith to be validated, that particular individual can do no wrong. And, mm-hmm. and that's a whole other problem uh, in itself. But so in terms of, you know, from what you've been seeing from, from our mini days until now, mm-hmm. Um, how would you assess the the direction of the race relations within the Muslim community? I think it's what do I say? I think it's complicated. Perhaps maybe that's what I'll say. Um, as someone who grew up, um, 
um, engaged in a lot of different sort of Muslim communities growing up, both kind of my local Brooklyn community was predominantly um, Black and Latinx, and then being a part of MENA, which is a community that was predominantly um, South Asian and Arab. Um, and, you know, being the only black friend that my sort of like Arab or Desi friends had, and then being the only black person in my community who had friends in these other communities, right? So sort of being in that kind of middle space, um, I think it's, it's an interesting sort of um, location to be at. I think on some level, you know, there is clearly, I think in terms of race specifically, there has clearly been a kind of um, awakening of sorts, I think, in the mainstream Muslim community about the problems of racism and particularly anti-Blackness. I think there is a kind of common sense that you can say that, right? You can be like, oh, you shouldn't say those kind of things. Like people accept that. Where I think before, there might not have been a sensitivity towards that. But at the same time, and this is actually something I talk about in my book, um, is that while that happens on one hand, on the other hand, there still seems to be an inability to identify when anti-Blackness is actually happening, right? So like, you know, so in terms of, you know, so on one hand, so we know we shouldn't be racist against Black people, right? So we know that, right? But we we don't know that we're doing that um, for non-Black people when we we say things like, you know, um, you know, that's so ghetto. Or we do things like, you know, don't invite this person. Or we only invite, cause, so for example, let's talk about in the book because I talk about this idea of um, uh, disavowal and instrumentalization. So the idea being that, you know, on one hand, you have Muslims who sort of disavow blackness. So anything that's related to blackness is considered sort of necessarily un-Islamic on some level or just religiously suspect. So they're always questioning it, right? But on the, on the flip side, you have people who like instrumentalize it. So it's cool and they like it, but they use it and they use black people, but only for their own ends. So I talk about that in terms of the examples I use is like, for example, in terms of um, uh Muslim, black Muslim men as scholars and artists. And so, you know, they're invited to, you know, fundraise for somebody. They're invited to, you know, perform for some organ, some, some group in a, in a, in a predominantly non-black community. And that would seem like a good thing, right? You're like, okay, cool. Like, you know, you're bringing people on to like hear what they have to say and you're elevating them. But the problem with that is that they're actually just a kind of a tool because there are no, the black people that would be in your community don't have a space. There's no space for them. They can't be there. They can't leave the prayer, you know, all this kind of stuff. And so that kind of that sort of what's happening in that kind of way in which, you know, and that's also a form of anti-Blackness. And why is that? Because it still devalues and demeans, right, sort of Black people in Black life. It still does that in a different kind of way. Or people, like people were saying, for example, I think what happened, this happened, I guess this year, it must have been, when the three young women, young Muslims were killed in North Carolina. Okay. You had the two, um, two, three Sudanese um, young men, two were Muslim, one was Christian, right. and the disparity in response, sure. right? Like that's also an effect of that. So on one level, I feel like, yes, we have definitely now we can ha- we're actually having a conversation like like i said i said like the idea that people are actually talking about um these comments and responding to them and not totally being dismissed completely is definitely i think a shift yeah so and that's you know that's a great that's a great uh point that you're bringing up because even if i look at El medina institute and the stuff that we're we're uh, covering in the past few years compared to the stuff that we were covering in our inception, the conversations that we're having at the Pearls of the Quran compared to the conversations that we're, we've had at the first Pearls of the Quran, there's been a definite shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that has to do with the fact that there's been a, a level of internal maturity and a recognition of these issues. Uh, but also, do you feel that sometimes there's this undue pressure um by some that are very vocal about these particular topics that these major organizations need to solve this problem for us. Mm. 
well, no, I would not say there's any undue pressure. Um, okay. but, um, but what I would say is that these sort of major sort of mainstream Muslim organizations are institutions that are going to take a long time to sort of like get up to speed on one level, because that's a nation of an institution, right? It just takes a long time for these things to change. Um, and two, um, because the, the I, sort of what, the, where they go wrong when it comes to questions of race and racial equality is not apparent sort of to them, right? And so it's going to take a minute for that to happen. And so I think that, I don't know, I feel like partially then what you do is you engage, right, when you can and when there are spaces to do so, but you also sort of um, do continue to do the work and create alternatives, right? So like, for example, the website that I started, Sopolo Square, was in some ways precisely because of that, right? So I could, right, you know, whatever Muslim magazine, area, you know, whatever, right? I could be like, oh, you know, you need to do more things with Black Muslims, you know, and I could petition them and try to work with them and to get them there. I could do that. And that's a good work. But while I'm trying to get them to move this way, there's all this stuff that we should be talking about that needs to be talked about that's not being done. Right. You know, it's the articulation of the situation on the ground. I think we were going back to what we mentioned a little bit earlier about has there been a maturity in the communities in, say, like our minute days? And I would say that I think just as a society, we tend not to um, tolerate the overt, prejudiced, bigotry type behavior uh, that maybe uh, we would have tolerated or uh, you know, 20, 30 years ago. Imam Bilal Ansari, who's, who works at Zaytuna College, he and I did a, a, a series of conversations on race on, on Iman Wire. And one of the first things that we were, when we were talking about this, uh, you know, personally, was that there's a knowledge gap, uh, I think, especially amongst uh, the quote unquote immigrant uh, Muslim community, but a South Asian, Arab, uh, Middle Eastern, and that uh, we, con- we understand that, that frank prejudice behavior is unacceptable, but it, it, there's still ways to go for us to understand the, the impact of, uh, of systematic racism in the community. And I think that's sort of what is one of the issues that, um, that was in uh, the comments that were made uh, this past weekend is that it sort of it settled on sort of some old tropes of uh, respectability politics, I guess you could say, in that sense of, uh, of, of of pointing at certain factors which actually are not true in the in, in the Black American community, but using those as uh, a means to blunt the discourse about the real issues on the ground. So it, it takes away the, the the vast majority of the reality that most African Americans are experiencing, um, and I think that's where the issue is. I think that we, as uh, as immigrant, quote unquote, immigrant Muslims, we're not seeing the whole scope of what's really going on. And when we when we point on certain factors, we just sort of it's almost like we're just erasing the whole like okay, we're erasing that whole attempt to discuss the the issue of structural racism in in America. Yeah, I mean, I think. So I definitely definitely would say that a structural analysis is sorely missing um, in many Muslim communities, and not just about anti-blackness, but even about how Muslims are being positioned as a racial group, right? And I think so. I think so. I think so. Sort of. I guess the sort of what happens here is not only um, are we um, sort of missing out on understanding 
sort of structural inequality as it affects Black people and how it, it sort of enters Muslim communities, but also the ways in which structural inequality shapes sort of Muslim, what it, what it means to be Muslim and access to, you know, rights and benefits and this kind of thing. And that the fact is that anti-Blackness and anti-Muslim racism are connected, right? Um, Anti-Blackness predates anti-Muslim racism in the United States, but it's patterned off of the same thing, right? So anti-Black racism, you know, makes these associations between um, bodies and behavior, right? People who look like this do that, right? And because people who look like this do that, they're a danger, they're a threat, they have to be subdued. Same thing with anti-Muslim racism, right? People who look like this, you know, do that. (laughs) Because, you know, they look like this, they do that, they have to be, you know, sort of, um, they're a threat and they have to be sort of, you know, pushed out or subdued, right? So this is um, sort of, these are sort of two sides in the way of the the same coin. And, um, but unfortunately, in in a lot of um, Muslim communities, um, particularly um, Arab and South Asian Muslim communities um, as a whole, um, because there are folks in those communities who have that sort of analysis. Like, you know, there are people like, for example, brother Fahad Ahmed, who's a part of DRUM, Daisy's Rising Up and Moving out of New York, for example. You know, they have that analysis. But a lot of these communities don't. Um, um, and so I think you do find that, right? So you do find this kind of, this rehashing of these kind of ideas that about Black people that are wrong and really based on sort of faulty kind of logic and evidence, but seen as true because they help to explain things much easier, right? It's a lot easier to be like, oh, the reason why, you know, um, Black unemployment is so high is because they don't, they don't, they don't, um, Black people don't, I don't know, know how to work, right? They don't have a good work ethic, right? That's a lot easier um, to kind of explain away than to be like, well, no, there's actually systemic inequalities in, in hiring practices because how do you address that like how do you get to that you know so on some level um i think it, it's 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 an easy it's an easy way right um to kind of like uh analyze quote unquote what's happening um but it's but it's faulty because then we actually don't actually get to the root of what's going on right and we just perpetuate one of the problems i think is that um is that we as uh, if we're talking about immigrant quote unquote immigrant muslims that we don't really understand the scope of of how deeply, um, and, and you talk about this in your book, um, when, you t- when you talk about the ethno-religious hegemony of mm-hmm. South Asian and um, Arab Islam, I think we don't, uh, we often are unable to step back and look at the community as a whole and understand that what impact um, our our dominance in our masajid, for example, our Muslim organizations um, has, ha- has had. Uh, mm-hmm. And it, it's hard for a lot of people to realize that uh, we have articulated Islam through a primarily South Asian or Middle Eastern lens, rep- trying to replicate it in America. In doing so, we've also uh, marginalized, excluded, erased um, a, a large component of the Muslim community, which is uh, the black American community. And I think if you don't understand that background and then you continue going the way that we continue to go, um, you're going to have even more um, you know, roots of potential uh, discord because we're not really addressing the problem. And I think as... But, but Slim, I think there's been a very positive shift of awareness has. that's been happening. So we have to, you know, yep. we have to keep juxtaposing. There has, but I think the there's still a lot of way to, ways there's to go. There's always going to be a lot, right? I mean, because look, I mean, the issue that you're going to find, uh, uh, Dr. Sarah and Slim, with a lot of these organizations is that they are dealing with a lot of different issues that they're trying to tackle, right? So how do they put the time and the resources 
to figure out, you know, which of these issues that we're trying to solve either internally or externally are the ones that we need to focus. So there are some that are doing wonderful work on focusing on this, like I believe Muslim Arc, for example, is one of the organizations. Uh, Lamppost uh, with uh, Dr. Um, uh, Abdullah bin Hamid Ali, right? They're trying to bring this to the forefront of the African-American scholarship and the awareness of racism and all these sort of matters. And I think they've had a lot of positive impact. So I just want to interject. But yeah, I think, but the same thing about these organizations is that who is, who is articulating the vision and the agenda of the organizations? And if you look at a lot of our organizations, the black American voice has not been articulated. Mm -hmm. It's been marginalized. I'm saying, and that's also in part because a lot of organizations are are dominated by uh, quote unquote immigrant Muslims. So, I mean, I think, so I think a couple of things. So Muslim Arc, for example, you, 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 Multasim, you talked about, right? So Muslim Arc is a great organization. It's really important work, very new, and not really being supported in the way it should be by the broader Muslim community, right? Um, I think, so I guess there are a couple of things. So, okay, so let me, so a couple of things. So one, I want to say, you know, Arab and South Asian, I want to just recognize that Arab and South Asian American Muslim communities are not monolithic, right? So there's diversity in those communities as well. Um, and that also, but there, but there are dominants. There's, there's hegemony even in those communities, right? So there are sort of folks who sort of set the tone for X, Y, or Z, right? Now, I think that what's important, so a couple of things that are important for us to think about when we're thinking about how Muslims interact sort of together. So one is the ways in which um, privilege, right, and, and, and um, um, works. So on one level, so there's this way in which, you know, sort of black Muslims, right, um, as black people, right, are subjected to um, anti-black racism from the society as, as a whole, right? And they're often put up against, right, so they're the kind of um, non-model minority, right? And then these people who immigrate from other places, Asian Americans, et cetera, are the model minority, right? And so this model minority then has a relative privilege, right? Because their relative privilege is that people are not looking at them the same way look at black people, right? People may hire them in ways they don't hire black people. So they have a relative privilege. Um, but at the same time, for most black people, and of course now black immigrants are going to be a different population, but for many black Muslims as black people, because blackness um, in um, this kind of multicultural U.S. has become quote unquote native, you know. So people don't think of people think of Americans. They're white and they're black, right? They kind of think about that. So, so this idea of you being, you know, sort of a foreigner who's never really going to fit in, you know, that type of thing, um, is not something that black people experience. So they have a, some sort of relative privilege in relationship to sort of the sort of Muslim immigrant because they don't have that. But of course, the thing, of course, this gets complicated, right? Because what about the black Muslim, right? Because the black Muslim then is going to be sort of subjected to, you know, this kind of anti-blackness and also this foreignness too, because well, you're Muslim, so what does that mean? So why do I bring that up? I bring that up because I think it's important that when we talk about sort of shifts and change and changes, I think we have to one, recognize how we're all located, you know, like in the society, both in terms of, and, and how we're located in the broader society and how that affects us internally, right? Um, and so I think that's important. And I think the other thing I just wanted to mention too, is that in going back to this way of how we engage blackness, I think one of the things that I've noticed, so this is what I noticed, and this is also, we have this idea called intersectionality that people talk about, right? So what does it mean to sort of not just be Black, we be black and Muslim, black Muslim and woman, black Muslim woman and disabled, that kind of thing. So what I've seen is that oftentimes you have a couple of things that happen in the Muslim community. So you have people who are in positions of whether they're like authority, so maybe they run an organization, or they're or they're just people love them, right? Because of what they speak, what they teach, that kind of thing. And there's a way in which 
but black Muslims are always missing from these kinds of things. So like, so for example, you know, I don't know, CNN does something, right? They call up some people, there are no black Muslims around, right? Or, or if you have a black Muslim, it's one person in particular. And then so there, and why does that matter? Because then there are people who have perspectives and expertise that are missing. Like one of the things, and this is kind of a little bit of- But, but sorry, field, do you feel that yeah. that is done on purpose? I feel that that is done because it's learned behavior. That's what I think. So I think that we have learned, I think Muslim communities have, have learned when it's appropriate for black people to be around. This is what I think, for, in, in a mass sense, right? So what I mean is then is that, so people will invoke, for example, enslaved African Muslims to make claims about how they belong in the US or how old Islam is to the US, right? Yet in their own social circles, and who they elevate, there are no black people, right? So, so it's like, okay, so as a history, we'll, we'll use them, right? Or people will talk about um, particular issues, right? And but when it comes to asking someone to sort of, you know, speak on that issue to bring them, they don't bring sort of black Muslims into the space. And I think it's because they learn this behavior. I mean, this is how anti-blackness works, right? It's not because people are consciously like, I hate black people. Like, <laughs> like that's, that really doesn't happen. Um, um, in a lot of those communities, I don't think we just hate black people. Like I don't think that happens, but they learn how to value blackness, right? So you learn, well, blackness is cool if you want somebody to sing you a song, right? Blackness may not be so cool if you want somebody to represent you um, at the White House, for example. You know what I'm saying? So it's kind of like people learn that these kind of how to value it, and then it it, it reproduces itself in the way we work in our communities. Let's move on to connect this with your book because everything we were talking about actually connects with the book, which uh, I must say is, is an absolute excellent book. I had the same reaction to it like the after I read you know, Islam in the Black American by Dr. Jackson. It's that that important a book, and I really would recommend any, everyone to, to read it. One of the things about your book is that you talk about uh, a Muslim culture that's developed, um, its connection with hip-hop, connection with... Um, social activism, social justice. If you could just briefly uh, give us the arc of Muslim culture, this Muslim cool idea that you, that you discuss in your book. Right. Um, so, yeah, so, well, thanks for what you said about the book. <laughs> That's exciting. Um, yeah, so Muslim cool. So Muslim was this term I'm using, right, to talk about a way of being and thinking about what it means to be Muslim in the U.S. And it's a way of doing that that sort of engages blackness to counter anti-blackness. And one of the ways that I kind of begin to talk about this in the book is through this concept that I call the loop of Muslim cool. And so this idea in the loop for people who are into hip hop, you know, looping is kind of a, is a technique, like a musical technique, right? So you take a piece of music, um, you take a piece of it and you loop it to create new music, right? So this loop. And why that's important is because you have change, but you also have continuity happening at the same time. And so the arc here is this idea that you know, when hip hop um, music and culture begins to develop um, in the United States, in New York City, in the sort of early 70s, what you had is you had communities of black and Latinx um, and also some multi-ethnic uh, folks who were developing this music who were sort of the inheritors of black power generation, right? They were inheritors of, um, you know, sort of Malcolm X. They were inheritors of the Black Panther Party and they were inheritors of the Nation of Islam. And they were inheritors of these ideas of, self-improvement, of consciousness, of community empowerment, right, that really came um, to sort of have an impact on urban communities, on black communities through, right, 
how black Muslims were operating in these communities, right? Um, and so what you have then is you have this, um, so that these ideas, right, these ideas, and I call this sort of this, and we, we talk about this in hip hop in terms of the phrase knowledge of self. Um, and this idea of sort of knowing where you come from so you can interpret your present, so you can sort of act on the world to improve the, the, your condition and, and those around you. And so knowledge of self is an ethical way of being. And so knowledge of self really comes into hip hop because this is this I make in the book is that this is what black Muslims, black Islam gave to hip hop music and culture. And so we see it right in the music and we people, people, how people dress, how they eat, you know, what they're talking about. We see that, you know. 30, 40 years later, you have young Muslims um, in the United States, and I focus specifically on Chicago, but not only, who are, may or may not be Black, right, who are raised Muslim, and who are into hip-hop, and they hear themselves. They hear the things that they believe in, or they hear things how they think Islam should be in this music, right? They're hearing it in there. And so then they're kind of, and, then, and so they're sort of taking that on, they're engaging it to sort of say, well, what does it mean for me to be Muslim right now um, in the United States? What does it mean for me to be a Muslim who's you know, standing up for social justice, who's countering anti-blackness, you know, in my Muslim community and in the broader community, right? And so they're returning to Black Islam. So this is kind of uh, this loop. And so what the book is kind of focusing on is how that happens, right? What are the influences? Like how has Islam influenced hip hop? How, what are they taking from hip hop? And how is it playing itself out in terms of their, how they understand their identity? Um, the questions of style I talk about in the book. And then lastly, um, talking about dealing with the state because one of the things that happens is you know muslim cool is about sort of counterculture in many ways right countering dominant the status quo right dominant ideas of anti-blackness countering that right um but when you hit the state and by the state i mean we can say the government right so you hit the government the question is can you still be a counterculture all the time right and how does the needs that muslim muslims have to be represented and to be acknowledged by the government, how does that affect your ability to challenge it at the same time, right? Like, how does that work? Um, and this is one of these dilemmas that I think Muslims are the only community that are facing this, but American Muslims are facing it. And so thinking about, so how does Muslim cool work in that space as well? When you talk about the knowledge itself, I came across this recent tafsir of the famous verse in Surah Al-Hajrat by uh, Imam Dawood Walid, where uh, Sheikh Ibrahim Niyas talks about that famous verse where you to know one another, and it begins actually with knowing yourself, and knowing your heritage, and knowing where you come from. Um, I found it very interesting um, in your uh, vignettes of, 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 of many of the, the, the non-black, um, uh, as you call, practitioners of Muslim cool. And what I think was interesting was how they were engaging in this, uh, engaging in this, in this, in this culture uh, as a means to break out of this, the insular. Uh, community that they're part of, you know, I think for a lot of us, especially in South Asian, uh, Middle Eastern uh, background growing up, there is that sort of insular, uh, would you agree, Matasim, that sort of insular community where we don't really, or we, we're not exposed to uh, those outside of our community. Absolutely. You know, and, and that is the, that's one of the big, the big issues. So what I thought was interesting with Dr. Swad talks on her book of these, in her field research, were these individuals who, uh, who by engaging the culture, uh, by engaging, for example, hip hop and that 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 culture around it, and getting into social activism, it, it broadened their worldview to a point where now they're working for interracial solidarity. They're working for uh, dismantling racial hierarchies, uh, and I thought that was very interesting because you know a lot of times you know Amatasim and I uh, you know we've talked before about 
uh, sort of the cultural confusions that um, mm-hmm. that we that a lot of us actually grew up. We were talking about Minna earlier, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, and, and Dr. Swad, you talk about um, uh, some some things in your book. One of the one of the stories, which um, I'll just mention very briefly, was from via Imam Talib Abdul Rashid, I believe, was about this group of in a Muslim fundraising there a fundraiser event. There was a group of, uh, of drummers from Senegal, and they were doing a performance. And um, the reaction to the crowd was sort of like, uh, "What do we do?" You know. Because uh, we, we sort of grew up, I think a lot of us can, can attest, like when we grew up, sort of like there was no culture in Islam, like it's only Islam, there's no culture, but human beings don't work right, work like that, right? There is there is a culture, we just may not recognize it or not. I think we're sort of to finally beginning to understand the importance of culture or cultures, I should say. When you talk about, when we're talking about Muslim cool, for example, do you see this, Dr. Suad, as something that going to be one of the American Muslim cultures or is it going to be the American Muslim culture? Where would a South Asian, Middle Eastern, uh, second generation, third generation, where would they fit in this type of culture? Or does it require their participation in, uh, say, social activism? I mean, I, I mean, I think, you know, so the folks that I worked with um, doing my research were Black, South Asian, and um, Arab American. And, um, and so it's a kind of where I'm kind of encountering Muslim cool. And I think that, yes, um, in order to sort of do Muslim cool, you have to be engaged. That's kind of, that's one of the sort of primary motivations um, and points of it. I think there is plenty of, um, and this is, you know, you know, sort of the difference between sort of like cultural appropriation and cultural ex- exchange, right? So there are plenty of non-Black young Muslims who listen to hip hop music, um, who can probably recite different sorts of verses, you know, they might wear a fitted cap and like, you know, whatever the style, now the style is like as tight jeans used to be, you know, baggy jeans, <laughs> like whatever the Sorry, style that, is. Sorry, I like. used to be one of them. <laughs> right, right. But not, not the tight jeans. <laughs> right. That was the style back then, right? So, I mean, plenty of them would do that, but their relationship to hip hop doesn't go beyond that, right? right? It's a fad. It's something that they're doing right now. It's kind of cool. It's in style. And then, you know, once they grow up, grow out of it, it's over, you know? That's not Muslim cool. Right. That's just cultural appropriation. Mm-hmm. Um, Muslim cool is really this serious engagement um, with hip hop culture, with black culture um, as a way to dismantle, like you said, these racial hierarchies, but also to understand who you are in the world. Right. Like so one of the one of the people I talk about in the book, um, uh, he goes he goes by it's like a moniker, like Omar Mukhtar. He's Libyan American. Right. I think about how he says, you know, you know, it was reading this kind of black radical literature, reading Omi Abu Jamal, like coming into hip hop that helped him understand what does it mean to be young, Arab and male, right? In this moment in time, how is my experience? Like, how do I learn from this other experience to understand my own? How do I see the connections? And then how do I work, right, to really kind of help us get out of this situation that we're in, in which we have all of this deep inequality in our society? Like, that's what Muslim Cool is about. So, yes, um, for people to be non-black and to be in Muslim Cool, yeah, because that's the nature of what I've what I've I've seen. But it does, it is, and it is, and the thing about it is one of the things I talk about in the book is this idea of I call it the ghost of minstrelsy past. So the ways in which minstrelsy, which for people who don't know, is basically what we call you know dressing up in blackface. The ways in which these kind of exaggerated um, uh, performances of what people think black people are in ways that demean, you know, they're funny and they demean black people, right? So you know, engaging hip hop culture means to engage blackness, right? Because hip hop comes out of the African diaspora. And so that, so this question of minstrelsy and just kind of putting on blackface is always there, right? Because that's our history. We really can't get, we can't 
you can't erase it, but you can try to sort of mitigate it, right? So when you have real relationships with Black people, you know, when you have real relationships in these communities, when you're sacrificing sort of your time and your effort to be in solidarity and have cross-racial solidarity with folks who are Muslim and non-Muslim, when you're doing that kind of work, you're doing Muslim cool, right? And you're able to sort of not be stuck, right? And, I, you know, I only can do it this way. It's more than a, you know, it's more than a fad. It's a commitment, really. It's a commitment. And that's why I say it's kind of like I say that Muslim cool is a lot of things. It's like, I say it's an epistemology, like it's a way of thinking about the world, what knowledge is, what counts as knowledge. You know, it's about how you talk about things, it's about how you dress. It's really, it's, 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 it's about, it's, a cult, it's, it's about culture, right? But it's about how it manifests in all these different kinds of ways. And it really is, though, I think, predicated on a particular kind of commitment to how you're going to live in the world, not just how you're going to like, what music you listen to, you know? Yeah, I think, I think actually, uh, that's sort of the most powerful, I, I, towards, I think, the end of the book, I think it, it's a very powerful conclusion. Because I think you could argue that uh, it's it's actually even uh, very instructive to us just in our general practice of Islam that to avoid the minstrelsy of of Islam even because culture um, it, it, yeah it's food choices it's dress it's it's music it's um, it, it's a lot of things um, but what is at the core essence of our culture as American Muslims you know I'm gonna just uh, just give a little quote from your from your conclusion here you say the future of Muslim cool and Muslims more broadly lies in investment in its alterity. The ability to, Im- to imagine, articulate, and participate in alternate choices to, uh, for resistance and political vision. And to me, I thought that was really an excellent conclusion because it's it's making the culture that we were all like the boogeyman that was like when we were growing up. They're like, oh my God, there's no culture in Islam. No, the culture of Islam is that. It is service. It is justice. It is uh, that spiritual anchor that we have to have in our life. And if we lose that, if it's not tied into everything that we do, then... There's not. There's no Islam. There's no. There's no real Muslim culture. So how are we going to frame this discussion that it's centered in what is the essence of who we are? What is the essence of what we do? I mean, you know, to Doctor Saad's point, to what you just said, I think there's an intersect of that. Let's just call it. You know, what I would call it is that spiritual culture, and this is the way that I approach it from from my paradigm, <clears throat> and it could be tied into uh, what Doctor Saad is referencing as Muslim cool to a certain extent, but. You know, that that spiritual culture, whether you're Arab, whether you're Pakistani, whether you're African-American, whether you're white, we're all tied in there, uh, caring about our neighbor, uh, wanting, to, wanting to do good in this world, um, you know, uh, getting involved in these sort of uh, political movements that bring about a, a, a positive social change to society that I live in. That's spiritual culture, and that's the culture that the Prophet ﷺ set up in Arabia. I mean, unfortunately, very often I see many people that they they look at the Prophet ﷺ as an Arab, and to me, you know, God doesn't send a prophet and tie him down to a particular culture. He transcended that culture. Yes, he dresses the Arabs dress. He ate what the Arabs ate ﷺ, but he put forth the spiritual culture there that transcends time. That's why whether you're African-American, whether you live in India, whether you live in Bangladesh, you can all tie into that spiritual culture of the Prophet, how that manifests itself in America uh, differs. But I do know that there is a a relationship between all of us and that we want to manifest that spiritual culture uh, here. So, you know, I think think there's going to be a lot of... um, positive change moving forward. I think that you're going to see a lot of people, especially, you know, so I, and I, as we're just talking about all this, and I'm just in my heart and mind sort of replaying what happened this weekend, I think a lot of the conversation that we're going to have on this t- subject of race is going to be painful, Sarad. 
I think oh, yeah. it has to be uncomfortable. It has to be. You're not going to grow. Yeah, it's we're not, not going to grow without this. And, and 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 as unfortunate as uh, as this weekend was, I, I think there's a lot of chayyeh that's going to come out of it. Mm. And you know, j- just me thinking, sitting here as you know the uh, the head of an organization, it also made me realize a lot of the work that we need to do. Um, but but I think Saad, that we need individuals such as yourself who can sort of help put forth this mature dialogue as to how we should correct our missteps or make us aware of certain things that we simply are not seeing, not because we're not looking for them, but because we're just unaware of them. Right. I mean, I think, I mean, I think you're right. I I think, so I think, like I said, I think this, what happened in this incident was, I think you're right. I think this, this is, this is actually an opportunity, you know, at least like a teaching moment. Right. (laughs) So like, this is, is, it is actually an opportunity. I guess the, the, what remains to be seen, or I guess we can try to work towards actually using this opportunity to actually move us forward. And I think, you know, one of the things that, um, are important, um, you know, is, um, lifting up you know so one of the things we talk about you know you put somebody on right so you know you have this organization or you have this thing who are you inviting right to share who are you inviting to speak who are you inviting to be there right and i think it's really really important that um in order for us to make take advantage of this of this moment that those of us who have platforms you know those of us who have spaces that we have some sort of control over that we that we do the really important work of putting other people on right so in terms of you know it's kind of in terms of you know one of the things and this is um sort of just me also as like a sort of a as a i guess as an academic scholar right um but one of the things that's really interesting is that you know you know as someone who writes about race and writes about race and muslims it's you'd be surprised how often muslims don't ask me about race and muslims right mm-hmm. <laughs> you know but they'll ask somebody else about it and you're just kind of like but you know what I mean? Like, what, what is that? You know, what, what's going on there? And why do I bring that up? Because I know that part of the reason they're not asking me about race and Muslims is because of these ideas of, of intersectionality, because I'm a black woman. Like, I know that. Right. And so because they are because, again, what we've learned. Right. So there are ways in which we think that these people do X and don't do Y. So you, you don't engage them in that kind of way. So even at our, even for those, so, so that means there's work that we have to do, not just for like how we teach people. So it's not enough just to say, okay, let's teach people that, you know, anti-blackness is wrong, but who is doing that teaching? What kinds of spaces are we, are we creating? Who are the kinds of people we're inviting? How are we really kind of expanding? Because one of the things that's actually, I think, a positive again of the Muslim community is that there is actually a lot of resources. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of people who who do really good work and who are who are ready and prepared to give us something, right? You know, and to help us get there. So we're not short on that at all, but we don't use it. You know, we like we 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 only we're all sort of short when that happens, right? Because we're not getting access to like all of these, you know, like for example, and you know, shout out to Zaytuna, right? So. Um, uh, there's a young woman, Aisha Ibrahim, who's from Chicago, who's a student at Zaytuna College, right? And um, I had at my home, actually last night, we had like a molded, you know, sort of celebration for women. And I asked her to kind of speak on if she could, and this is like last minute, right? Like I was kind of like, oh, I need someone to just kind of talk about Prophet Muhammad in like a cosmological sense, you know, this kind of thing, you know? And, you know, and she, she was like, yeah, I'll try my best. And she came and she said a few words and it was really fantastic and it was wonderful. And it was like opened people's hearts. And it was like, wow, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know that about him, you know, this kind of thing. Right. And, you know, it's like, 
creating that opportunity. So here she is, this young woman, you sure. know, from some South Side of Chicago, who's studying at this institution, and she's learning things. And she also, and she's not just repeating what someone's told her, but she's also sort of interpreting it, right, and bringing her own sort of expertise and knowledge and experience to give us something new, right? Mm-hmm. And I was just thinking about, you know, how wonderful it is that, you know, that we have that opportunity to learn from her, right? And she's young. She was one of the youngest people there, you know. Um, but this is like this is this is what this is what we get when we do that, right? right. You know, we get we get um we get so much more. I'm with you 100, percent and uh, we're, we're we're trying. We're all is, isn't isn't that really what cool is, right? It's investing in new voices <laughs> who are giving you're going against conformity, right? Yeah, uh, right. You're going just trying to bring this into this, uh, you know, as we as we close here about this, um, you know, so Muslims can be cool. I've yeah. learned this by reading your book, by the way, uh, <laughs> well, and it's something yeah. that I that inshallah I hope to aspire to become one day to be called cool. Um, you're cool I have so to do the work worry, there, you're right? Cool. No, no, I got to do the work, right? It's, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, yeah. Activism, that's, that's gotta, cool, yeah. Doctor, so can you can you, give, can you give can you tell Slim he's cool? Um, I mean, it sounds like it. I mean, I, you know, I feel like. Heard, you know, well, thanks. You're very nice. She's like, I'm not so sure, <laughs> but it's been really been an honor to to really sh- share this podcast with the two of the coolest yeah. people that. I can imagine being on the show, Matassim yeah. and uh, Dr. Swad. Uh, Dr. Swad, please tell us uh, um, how we can um, uh, about your book, where we can find it, um, and if you could just qu- uh, briefly give a, a quick. Um, uh, you, you mentioned uh, Sapelo Square a little bit, but just I want to give a yeah. shout out to them yeah. uh, because yeah, I think yeah. that's also a great, um, great effort as well. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so Muslim Cool is available at you know bookstores nationwide. Now. But you can find it like nyupress.org, Amazon, Powell's, Barnes and Noble. So it's available online, um, many places. Also, I have a website, um, drsuad.com, and there I have some more information about the book, links to buy it, and also some of the media and ideas that are in the book um, associated with it. Um, and Sapelo Square um, is so it's a it's an online resource on Black Muslims in the United States. Um, we are now about a little over two years old, and really what we're trying to do at Sapelo is to create a place where um, you know kind of the that documents and analyzes the Black Muslim experience. You know, I like to say you know, Black Muslims are small yet prominent um, um, population, you know, because we gave the world Malcolm X and Muhammad Ali, right? And so I think, and that's not by on accident, I think because Black Muslims are at this intersection of the United States, of the African diaspora, and the global Muslim community, right, so that this really important intersection they can sort of, they, their experiences and what they're dealing with speaks to so many different issues. And so I think there's a lot that we can learn, whether you're, whether you're black and Muslim or not, right, from, 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 that, from that experience. So that's what we try to do. We try to make stuff that's critical, but also accessible um, for folks who want to learn um, about sort of um, this community um, here in the U.S. And that website, website um, is sapelosquare.com, S-A-P-E-L-O square.com. Yeah, it's a really excellent resource. I'd really, uh, uh, really suggest it to all the listeners out there. So I want to thank Matasamati uh, and Dr. Suad Abdul Kabir for a very uh, interesting discussion. Uh, please uh, be sure to check our website, imanwire.com, for the latest articles and podcast episodes. Thank you again for listening. Assalamu alaikum.